Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Here in Florida, it is a nice evening. Temperatures in the high 70s. Um, we're getting the kind of winter that uh, people come to Florida for. In any event, I've been doing a series of shows uh, and discussing an awful lot about politics and a lot about authoritarian politics because of my uh, mounting anxiety that uh, we are entering a period, possibly, uh, all over the world and especially here in the United States where um, authoritarianism and totalitarianism are making uh, a march on eroding the bases of democracy. Uh, the, the, the things that I will talk about tonight uh, from which a real democracy, as much as we've ever had, uh, emerged. And um, I keep talking about psychotherapy in quotes because to me that is uh, the democratic form of psychotherapy. Um, I've talked about many times that uh, the minute we give a diagnosis to somebody, uh, it has nothing to do with medicine. It's merely a bad name we call somebody, which, if internalized, sets the person on themselves, against themselves, and sets the person uh, very often with a feeling of hopelessness that uh, they can never change uh, the behaviors that cause them misery and unhappiness. Uh, moreover, <clears throat> it uh, takes out of their hands any sense of responsibility that they are participants in their life who are capable of making changes in the way in which they live. Um, I'm going to end up really talking about psychotherapy, again, therapy in quotes, um, because I'm getting sort of tired of talking about politics. Um, and, and it's only, I believe, if we become aware of what made us as a people more democratic and, and uh, we fight to preserve those aspects of life that are inherently democratic, that, that almost demand a different kind of psychology uh, than uh, exists the interpersonal and intrapersonal between and within people that exists in totalitarianism. Um, <clears throat> I'll do one more show probably just on the psychology that exists uh, in totalitarianism and, 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 and authoritarianism. Uh, but I want to talk today about the rise of democracy uh, in the last few hundred years, which really are the emergence of what might be called the modern era. And I want to talk about what make, makes it a modern era. As I go along, I'm going to make clear that the elements of authoritarianism are always present, are always seductive. Um, that is, uh, the, the hierarchy that says some people are better than other human beings, some are more human, uh, as the line, the famous line in Animal Farm by Orwell, when the pigs take over, they say, we are all equal, but some of us are more equal than others. 
Um, uh, and the kind of psychology that I'll expand on in my next show, in which basically people are labeled according to their rank in society. I mean, just think about uh, the more money you have, the more you're in the upper classes. The less money you have, you are in the lower classes. Uh, democracy uh, exists to the degree that there is a middle class, but it's always in danger uh, within uh, the way we live to retreat to what I keep calling the uh, uh uh, the position, the, the basic human position that emerged through our evolution uh, to live in an authoritarian system with strict hierarchies uh, in which the climb up in part means stepping on the head and the hands of those below and the kind of psychological uh, uh, procedures that lead people to hate themselves uh, and, and look up and say, I worship those above me uh, and feel I have no choice but to be like them. Uh, <clears throat> so what, what created the modern era? And again, I'm not going to go through uh, the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution. Uh, I want to talk about these not in historic, a direct historical sense like a history lesson, but to talk about what occurred and then the kind of psychological processes that emerged that have changed us so profoundly here in the West, especially and in the United States, uh, in the last 250, 300 years. First, there has been a general increase in wealth due to uh, industrialization and technological development. Right? Um, more and more people had the wherewithal to not only earn a living of sustenance where they could put food on the table, but they could have uh, a kind of psychological space in which they can play, that is, do things for their own sake that are enjoying, enjoyable simply because the activity itself is pleasurable. So that there's been an increase of money and money that has been distributed more widely than has ever been distributed before in human history. And money does carry with it a certain power, a certain ability to make choices about where to live and how to live. Um, uh, uh, that kind of wealth uh, produces personal and, and political power. Um, what, what's interesting is that, again, within the industrialization of the United States, there's been wonderful stuff, if you get to see on PBS, uh, on the Gilded Age and, and the rise of industrialization, a number of shows Ken Burns have done, uh, that what emerged, again, within the labor market was a hierarchy in which children were put to labor, people worked 12, 13-hour days, six days a week, uh, the emergence of sweatshops, uh, horrendous working conditions in which people uh, struggle to earn their living and be able to put the belief that they could put their children uh, in better way of living, a better way of life due to economic progress. Um, 
And it was only uh, from my point of view that the democratization of industry came through the unions. Now, I have to, you have to immediately recognize that once people became powerful within the unions, the authoritarian uh, uh, desire emerges again so that many union leaders became corrupt and many union leaders uh, abused the power of their position. But overall, uh, until very recently, the rise of unions uh, were an incredible force for a development of a middle class that had more political and economic power than any other time in history and was therefore a tremendous force for democratization. Because as I said last week, and I'll say again, from a purely political point of view, democracy exists to the degree that everybody shares in the power-making and the decision-making of the society. To the degree that the decision-making is made by a thin, small group on the top, uh, and, and everybody is obedient all the way to the bottom, those below the top force those below them, who force those below them, who force those below them until we get to the economic and political bottom. Um, uh, that, that, to the degree that we have political power more widely shared, checks and balances, uh, the more we have a, a, a democracy up from a political point of view. But again, that doesn't get to the psychological experience. That is, I am a part of the larger society. I have something to say. I have the power to say it without fear. Right? And again, I see the unions in the last 15 years literally being destroyed. Uh, and, and again, people turning away from the unions, which made their parents, in many cases, able to send them to college and open up a window of opportunity so that uh, they, they didn't have to labor at something merely to survive, but could have real choice and feel personal choice in how they live their life. Okay? With the increased money, uh, circulating in society and a more shared power system, there has been a tremendous increase in ec economic opportunity. Throughout, from the Middle Ages on, literacy uh, was, was uh, uh, on the increase. I cannot state enough my, my, my love of an education that gets people to read and think about their lives and ultimately write about it if, if that's their bent. Uh, the, the whole idea of an educated human being <clears throat> who understands their history, who understands the geography of the world, who understands the economics and the economic system, who understands psychologically and intellectually the difference between living in an authoritarian hierarchy versus a shared democratic power structure, shared power, uh, is incredibly important. And one of the signs that uh, over the many years I was a psychotherapist, uh, that I was having a success 
with my clients was their decision. After often a year, two years discussion, they would go back to school, get their GED degree, and begin to take uh, college courses. Uh, and any number of them uh, went at, you know, that by the time they were adult, they had children, they had responsibility. But in many cases, they would take uh, night courses um, and, and with tremendous powerful effect on their outlook and understanding of themselves and the world. Uh, when the printing press was invented, the Gutenberg printing press, the church was excited to get people to read because they could now read the Bible on their own. Uh, what they didn't foresee is that uh, if you could read the Bible, you could read anything else. And with increased literacy, uh, the political change in the structure of our society, when people could write their own tracts and write their own uh, uh, arguments for a, one life or another. The Federalist Papers, uh, which were written mostly uh, uh, by James uh, Monroe and, and Alexander Hamilton, had a profound effect on the democracy that emerged in our society. Next, as people became more educated, they became more inclined to become involved with the popular arts. I have said many times to people who listen or don't uh, on my show and elsewhere that the, the joy of society, the goodness of life, to me, is uh, expressed in the quality and the range of the arts. Um, one of the reasons I am happy to be uh, retired is I now have a really large amount of time to listen to the kind of music I love. And to me, it doesn't matter what you like. If you listen to a lot of music, whether it's pop music or classical as I like, uh, or, or uh, world music or whatever it happens to be, you develop a discerning air, ear, and you begin to hear the difference between, in that genre, the real quality and the stuff that is just there maybe to make a book or to have a, a, its artist a 15 minutes of fame. <clears throat> um, I, I have now, uh, one of the things that makes me want to live forever is Apple Music. I am constantly uh, being shown pieces of music I didn't know even existed. <clears throat> uh, uh, this week, last week, a Philip Sawyer, English composer, uh, who wrote three symphonies. I was able to immediately hear his third symphony. Uh, I've yet to get to the first and the second, but the third is a wonderful, wonderful piece. And to do this, uh, write a symphony like this is a year or two years hard work without any real uh, a promise of an economic payoff. So I'm always amazed and astounded when I listen to a piece that took so many hundreds of hours of painstaking work uh, for the composer. Why do they do it? In part, it has to be. And I know it has to be because I have known a number of composers uh, uh, in my life personally. 
a need for self-expression. And it is through the arts, what we read and what we create in the arts, uh, music, dance, um, for the last several years, my wife and I have taken uh, a subscription to the ballet here in Florida, uh, the Miami, Miami Ballet. Uh, and I watch these young people who really have a very short lifespan as, as performers, what it does to their bodies. But the joy, passion with which they express themselves through their, through their music, through their dance. And many of the pieces that I love uh, are, are pieces that um, <clears throat> uh, are, are a concert to me and a, a joy to my ears and a pleasure to watch these young people express themselves uh, so poetically and, and so beautifully and at such a high standard of precise uh, movement. Um, I wanted to back up for a second. It's interesting that when the church dominated Europe, music was almost lit all liturgical. It was in the late 1700s into the 1800s, what we call the Romantic era, is really the first music that was totally non-liturgical. It wasn't that liturgical music wasn't being composed, but a great deal of abstract, non-liturgical music, operas that didn't deal with church life and the hierarchy of church and heaven, but about ordinary people and their lives and their passions and their pleasures and their tragedies. Uh, in 1805, 1804, 1805, Ludwig van Beethoven uh, wrote his fourth piano concerto. And it is, I don't know if he was conscious of it, a political statement. Because up until then, and still today, in most concertos, the orchestra plays first, what called the tutti. It is the group dominates until the individual is given its chance to express itself. In this case, the piano. Right? In that fourth piano concerto, which many people consider his best of the five, uh, not necessarily the most popular because the fifth called the Emperor Concerto uh, became the most popular. It was the largest piece and titles very often have a, a commanding effect on what people uh, ultimately will listen to and like. But in that concerto, the piano opens first. First the solo and then the tutti. And the tutti imitates the melody played by the individual on piano. That is the emergence of democracy, expressed symbolically in music. With the arts, everybody can be an artist. And when I look at people in politics, I don't think many of them who are authoritarian like music or like dance. I think it touches them in ways they don't want to be touched. It opens up emotion that they want to keep closed and away from. I wonder how much uh, music, and I see this in people I know, the more authoritarian they are, the less they have pleasure 
in any of the arts. Uh, literature, I should just mention, with the rise of, of uh, secular literature, uh, one of the things that I try to get my children successfully and my grandchildren generally successfully is to read. <clears throat> when I used to supervise a psychologist and a psychiatrist who would come through the clinic I worked and did their, uh, their, 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 uh, their piece in, in the psychiatric clinic, I used to say to all of them, I hope you're reading because the best psychologists were people who are good authors. The best description of how people think and how they make their mistakes and how they are transformed by their efforts in interaction with the response from the lives they live, from the social surroundings, are in literature. So that the expression that comes through literature, when you read it, if not necessarily write it, is very profound. And finally, I want to talk about the ascendancy of science. Um, what's interesting is that science is seen by most people, very few people understand science, <clears throat> which is sad because science has as its goals really not necessarily to do experiments, the testing of ideas, uh, the development of laws, uh, of that is, predictions that could be made uh, unerringly and accurately, is not necessarily uh, why, I think, uh, a, a big part of education should be in the sciences. What science did was move away from knowing things based upon authority and authorities demand about the truth until, until a process in which the truth became based on facts, and facts were based upon observation. The observations were how we learn. In an authoritarian system, the rule generally is, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? And it better be me, or you're going to have your, hand head, your head handed to you. It's going to be my way, or it's going to be the highway. I can't tell you the number of people, I've unhappy people, who came into therapy without understanding the relationship between growing up in a system that said, my way or the highway which in effect was also my way or you don't get loved, my way you get beaten, my way or you get derided. You're told what a low life, what a bad, desperately uh, despicable individual you are for not being obedient to those stronger and above you in the hierarchy. Science says... We learn through observation. We look at the world around us and we describe what we see. We describe. And when we can describe things well enough, we can explain how they work. And when we can explain how they work, 
we can begin to make predictions about how they will behave. <clears throat> and once we can make predictions about how we understand how they behave and what happens under this circumstance or that circumstance, we begin to develop some sense of control over them. So the more we learn about diseases through observation and the things that create disease or diminish the possibility of disease, the more we can develop a, a, a prediction of what will happen. We are given smoking. Uh, for years, the authoritarian uh, business community, the tobacco companies, knew that smoking caused all manner of physical deterioration, not just lung cancer, stomach cancer, bladder cancer, uh, all kinds of serious denigration of the human body, and denied it and attacked people in their pure authoritarian way uh, to prevent that knowledge. But the more this became common knowledge and the fewer people who smoked, the fewer the diseases. And once you understand the disease process, you try to control it. Ultimately, the best control of disease is not curing the disease, but preventing it in the first place. And at this point in our society, we're not doing as good a job in understanding how to prevent disease than to control or cure it because the authoritarianism of our drug companies and the medical system says, let's sell as much of this as we can, uh, which costs and makes profit, uh, rather than let's find out how to prevent. And we're beginning to get that information. Uh, the rate of heart attacks in our society has dropped dramatically from the time I was a young man or a boy uh, to now. And we ultimately will have control over the processes that create cancer. Uh, so that science doesn't have necessarily a goal of technology, although that has happened uh, as, as the rise of technology, uh, but of observation, description, um, explanation, prediction, and control. And the better somebody can do that in their life about themselves and the behavior of those around them, the better psychologists they are. And the better their psychology, the better they can find ways to choose to live as long as they become politically active and see to it that the forces of authoritarianism that are always there, always ready, because they are the default position that uh, uh, exists within us because of our emergence from an evolutionary process. The more that space exists politically, the more the arts I don't have to show you, tell you, anybody who's watching the political process, the attack uh, on money for the arts, the attack on science, the attack on free education. Uh, let's just create no more public schools, which our founding fathers created as the great bulwark 
against totalitarianism, free public education, free widespread commitment to public education. Let's replace it with religious education in which uh, if Darwin is taught, it's taught as uh, this is sinful. We're not allowed to learn this. Let's roll back the sciences because by rolling back the sciences and controlling the arts, you roll back the free expression and the ability to control through un intellectual understanding and you roll back democracy. Yes, I like this. I really do. Even within science, this tremendous tendency towards authoritarianism. We all know about the uh, Nazi doctors, uh, Robert Lifton's big tragic book about the experimentation, the sadistic experimentation by the Nazis on, on their prisoners, most, many or most of whom were Jewish, uh, freezing them to death to see how cold, uh, how long people could tolerate cold before they freeze to death, or putting them in hot environments and, and seeing how long it takes for them to suffocate from the heat, uh, doing surgery with anesthesia, without anesthesia. That is, dehumanizing and demonizing the subject so that they were treated uh, worse than we would treat rats uh, in a scientific experiment. Anyone, according to science today, can know anything if they're interested. How powerful a thought is that? Uh, in America, we have our own sad stories of scientists who wanted to understand uh, the effects of radiation and put plutonium and uranium uh, into the cornflakes and breakfast cereals of children in orphanages. Or the horrendous Tuskegee experiments in which uh, 800 or so black prisoners who were infected with, uh, um, my mind, I think I better hang up and do the show later, with syphilis. Uh, nothing really could be done until the 1940s when penicillin was available to cure the syphilis. But they wanted to know what was the progression of the disease so they can scientifically document the stages of decline and suffering and withheld any treatment for these individuals. So that it's always there, always there. Authoritarian systems of education, authoritarianism in relation to the arts, authoritarianism practiced within science, uh, soldiers who were trotted out uh, close to the, uh, uh, far enough from the atomic bombs that were detonated in the American desert, uh, far enough so that they wouldn't be blown away, but not far enough not to get doses of radiation where they could then be followed in terms of understanding what diseases and what damage the radiation will do. So, we are Democrats, and that's big D, not the party Democrat. I'm sorry, that's small d. Uh, we are Democrats to the level that we are politically active and fight to define, 
two things necessary for our personal development and survival. One is expression, free expression, that we can express ourselves, hopefully in ways that benefit others as well as ourselves, through the arts, through literature, through what we say, how we express ourselves in all areas of life, and how we can understand better ourselves and those around us. When we understand the difference between a democratic structure and an authoritarian structure, I think most individuals would choose the democratic as scary and as uh, 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 demanding as that way of life becomes. Standing up to authority and authoritarianism is never easy. Speaking out always may have its consequences. We now have authoritarianism attacking our sciences, our arts, our justice system, uh, all of the checks and balances that allow a space to exist, not only in how we act politically, but in the freedom to think and express ourselves follow our interests to understand what it is in the world we wish to understand. Which brings me to psychotherapy, in quotes. Uh, Anybody following my show, and I'm not going to have the time again to go through, the uh, people I have met in my life who work with other people who are disturbed and unhappy and confused uh, are some of the most democratically committed Uh, uh, in the world because in science we don't judge there's a famous physicist uh, uh, who who was a colleague of of Einstein's worked on the theory of relativity who said you can judge something or describe and understand something but not at the same time and the notion of understanding is precluded and prevented by labeling If we don't understand why someone can't learn, we have to say what is the process of learning in this individual and what is the best process of teaching them. We do not say they are learning disabled, which is what is regularly done. I used to enrage the teachers I trained when I was teaching college because we had a teacher program by saying, is it ever possible for a teacher to be teaching disabled? Is it only the student who is disabled when he can't learn in relation to a given teacher? Hmm? Unfair question? Not to me it isn't. The label prevents us asking What is it that precludes this person from learning in the context that we wish them to learn and learning the topics? We have a word for people who don't learn. We call them stupid. How often did I hear and sometimes even say to my ever shame, my, my everlasting shame, God, this student is stupid. They're too stupid to be here. If somebody learns in a way that we're astounded, we say they're a genius. 
But the label genius and the label retarded or stupid explains nothing. I once asked again, I think I said this before, uh, a fairly successful composer, how can you compose? And he said, the same way you write. You think in words. I think in music. The notes are there in my head. I hear the sound that I want to put down on paper so that other people can play instruments or sing this music. Wow. That's different than saying he's a genius. And I'm also convinced that the best composers, some of whom I've known and many whom I haven't known, had a feeling of determination and what I will call with a judgment courage, a demand to say what they wanted to say the way they wanted to say it. And again, I don't want to promote blatant individualism. Liberalism is not the same as individualism. Life is miserable and life becomes awful when we cannot express ourselves for fear or inability to do so, or we express ourselves in such a way as that it destroys the lives and the people around us. We have to be part of something larger than ourselves, a family, a culture, a society, a, 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 a neighborhood, a community. But within that, we need a democratic structure that allows us and which we demand, we demand will we'll, uh, uh, permit free expression and free inquiry. That's what I wanted to say today. Now, my next show is, I think it's going to be, a, I may delay talking about the psychology of authoritarianism, or maybe if I can, I'll do two shows this week, if I can. My family's coming down next week, and that means uh, I am going to be occupied uh, uh, with them, uh, pleasurably occupied, I must say. Uh, but what happens in psychotherapy, we describe rather than judge. We listen. And, and the tragedy of my field is the authoritarianism built into the so-called diagnostic system, where you have to make up a word, a pseudo-medical entity that doesn't exist and it cannot be proven to exist. Uh, and if it did exist, would demand that we don't take care of it as psychologists or social workers or even psychiatrists, but that neurologists and others who work with uh, uh, damaged brains and, and uh, biochemical upsets uh, uh, are, are going to be able to try and prove the functioning of the individual. True medical problems. So in order to work with somebody, you have to label them. And these labels are invidious, they're disgusting, and they're atrocious. And they take all of the pleasure and they set the, the, the democratic process necessary for a real psychotherapy, a meeting of minds, a lack of judgment, and they put them behind this judgment that dominates everything. So I will do a show soon, hopefully later this week if I can fit the time, on my notion of psychotherapy. Therapy in quotes, metaphorical psychotherapy. 
a kind of a democratic learning process where one becomes a better scientist and a more expressive artist in creating the narrative or changing the narrative by which they live their life. To me, that is the science I'm interested in. How do we achieve that in, in, a, in a process, an interpersonal process? I will talk about that, and if anybody asks me, how can I find a good psychotherapist? My answer will be, you have to create one. You have to become one yourself, but you have to enter into a relationship with a therapist and negotiate the basis of that relationship. And there are two aspects of it that are very tough. One is the insurance that most people want to pay for their therapy and say, gee, I don't have to pay for the therapy. I'm sorry, boys and girls. The moment that label is applied to you, you have a label for the rest of your existence, and you'll never know where or when. That will come up and bite you on your ass. So we'll talk about that uh, and other aspects. Uh, one of the things I... I uh, determined to do is that whatever I write in my notes and I have to keep notes and don't pretend that your notes are privileged. The insurance company has those notes. I work with Medicare. Medicare has the notes. Uh, they go into a book that anybody in my uh, 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 clinic, no, the, the, the nursing home that I work in can open that book and read those notes. Uh, so I put nothing there that doesn't meet two criteria. One, that it will not divulge anything I believe damaging to the personal life of the individual I'm working with. And the second thing is there's nothing, if they ask me, I won't read to them. Uh, that is, to me, a critical issue. Is your therapist writing stuff about you that won't be shared, that they won't share? If not, why not? My doctor shares everything that he writes about me. Any report that exists about me, I have copies of, whatever they are. Not the same with psychiatric or psychotherapeutic notes. Why? Anyway, we'll talk about how to invent yourself as a citizen, a participating citizen of a psychotherapy process. That'll be good for you and good for the person you work with and will be free as much as possible of this terrible notion of being labeled in such a way that uh, uh, it's demeaning and damaging to you and everything around you. Nobody has called in. That's okay. I'm going to stay 60 seconds. That's all I have left. I did 45 minutes today longer than I want to do. Um, but this flowed pretty well, I think. And I will end this up. <clears throat> Still early enough to go have uh, some dessert. Don't have much. Maybe a cup of tea and some crackers would be okay, too. I'm going to say good night. End the episode.